Again, if you did not uh, get the little uh, keychain, just raise your hand. We'll get a uh, card to you, and uh, we'll get that sent out to you. Um, I was just noticing this morning, uh, Chuck and I will be team teaching today, and I was looking at the colors that we were wearing. Um, you know, like in old westerns, the guy who wears black is usually the bad guy, you know, and the one who wears white is kind of like the Lone Ranger. Uh, so uh, I'm helping, and well, we'll wait and see what happens. Um, but hey, we're so glad that you're here this morning, and uh, if you would, in your program, there is a teaching outline. I'd like you to pull that out right now, even if you're typically not one that likes to fill in blanks, if everybody could do that, uh, just humor me a little bit there, and uh, we'll kind of jump right on in. We're in uh, week two of 40 days of uh, the Bible that we've been focusing in on, and this is kind of our spiritual growth campaign. We do one of these each year where we try to uh, help people grow spiritually, and I'm really excited about this series because I believe at my core that this is going to change your life. That if you kind of plug in and you get focused in here, that this has the power uh, to change your life. Now, at the heart uh, of this whole campaign is our small groups. And if for some reason you haven't got connected to a small group yet, it's not too late. You still can do that. And so I want to encourage you to stop at the small groups table and uh, fill out a card, get plugged into a group. It's the best way to grow. Because it's in our small groups that we're actually going to give you tools on knowing how to interpret the Bible. You see, we believe here at the JAR that you just don't have to come on Sunday to hear God's Word, how it's interpreted, but that you yourself can do it on your own. And so we're going to give you some tools through our small groups to try to help you do that. And you can understand God's Word uh, by yourself. Now, a second component that we've been uh, working at uh, is this little keychain. Uh, and those of you who were here last week, uh, you got a second one. And if you weren't, we'll uh, mail these to you this week. But we want to encourage people to memorize Scripture during these six weeks. And so this uh, last week, we had our first Scripture, and it'll come up here on the side screen. And in a way to ingrain this into my five-year-old and three-year-old, it's the only time we let them do this, but we let them stand on their chairs, uh, and uh, probably not real safe, so if my parenting skills aren't that great, deal with it. But uh, we let them stand on their chairs, either at breakfast or lunch, and they can raise their hands up like this, and we say this scripture together. Now, if you want to join me in this, you can, but you don't have to, okay? So we're going to read this scripture together uh, for all three and five-year-olds that we know. Uh, one, two, three. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, all of those that didn't raise their hands, we know you're not sure this morning. Little B.O. Uh, that's going on. I think that's happening. Now, this week, we've added a second scripture, and uh, we're going to add it. And this is it, Psalm 119.18. Let's read this together. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And that means in the Bible, the wonderful things that are in the Bible. And so this week, uh, we'll do the same thing. And so if a five-year-old and a three-year-old 
can memorize the first one. Everybody here can, guaranteed. And now we have a second one to kind of add uh, to it. Now, this book is not just any book. It is the best-selling book in the history of the world. In fact, every single year, you know what the best-selling book is? They don't even put it on the New York Times anymore because they already know it's going to be the Bible. The Bible is the best-selling book in history. And it's the most translated book. And it's the most read book uh, of any book that there is. But how do we really know that this is God's Word and that it can be true? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now what I want us to focus on is that first little phrase there, all Scripture is what? God-breathed. It's God-breathed. In other words, God breathed His words into this book. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, what in the heck does that mean? What does it mean that it is God-breathed? Now, some translations uh, translate this as, as inspired, that God's Word is inspired. But we're not talking about just an inspirational writer writing about a insp- or having an inspirational book. We're talking about God inspiring this book. It is God-breathed. He breathed His words into this book. The Word of God is God's very breath. That's what the Bible is. And it's not just a, a good idea, but it's God's Word to us. So as a result of that, Psalm 119 tells us this. And let's uh, read this one together. All of your commands can be trusted. They can be trusted. This book is trustworthy. Folks, everything in this book can be trusted as true because it comes from God. Now, it's very, very easy to claim something, right? I mean, people claim stuff all the time. People say, uh, I I claim that I can do this or I can do that. Uh, I can say this or I can say that. Um, But sometimes proving something is much more difficult. I mean, for example, I could tell you that uh, I am an expert guitarist, that I'm actually better than Eddie Van Halen up there, okay? And I could really start to jam, but I can't because I really don't know how to play a guitar. I can't do squat. Now, I thought that I might jump. Remember Van Halen had that song? Jump! And Am I old? Does anyone know Van Halen? Okay. Thank you. Might as well jump! Jump! There you go. That's a little better. And I could do that. But uh, if I got up and I actually started to play, I mean, I couldn't do anything because I don't know how to play a guitar at all. Let me give you another example. I could claim, for instance, that Chuck had a full head of hair like this. <laughs> Troy Palomalo enters our being, you know. And uh, now I could claim that this is right, you know, that it's true. But Chuck, if you would, want you to turn around and we can. Uh, <laughs> 
we can take care of that. I mean, it's kind of got a, woo, it's a little bit bright there in the back, you know. We're just joking, you know. So it's one thing to claim that the Bible is the Word of God. It's one thing for us to say that the Bible can be trusted, but how do I really know? I mean, that's the thing. I don't want you to believe that because I tell you, I want you to know. How do I know that this is the Word of God? How do I know that it's not just a bunch of fables, a bunch of nice moral stories that make people feel better? How do I know that this can be trusted, that I can trust it? Well, Time Magazine had a front cover with a pretty good question. Uh, This was one of their covers. How true is the Bible? That's a good question. Another cover they ran not too long after that was this one. Is the Bible fact or fiction? See, because I just want you to know, folks, that if you think it's fiction, you probably shouldn't be a Christian. But if you think it's fact, we want to help you to understand why that is. This morning, with the help of Chuck, we're going to settle this issue once and for all. Because there is incredible proof and evidence and facts that this book is true. And we want to take you through that. And it's not about what other people have said about this book. It's not what scholars say about this book. It's what the book says about itself and even what science and history kind of define and teach us that the Bible really is true. So let's dive right in to looking at our first uh, question here of why can I trust the Bible? And the answer, the first one is, the first proof is that it's historically accurate. How can I trust the Bible? Why can I trust the Bible? Because it's historically, that's the word you can write in there, historically accurate. The Bible is not just accurate regarding morals and ethics. It's not just theologically or doctrinally right. But it is true history with real people and real places with real time. It is true historically. Now, why is that even important? Why should we think that this really is true? Because the Bible tells us that God cannot lie. The one who wrote it says he can't lie. So if you don't lie, then you're telling the truth. The Bible says this in Hebrews 6.18. Let's read it together. It is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. God is truth. Let me just say this, folks. If this book has one lie in it, then it's not a godly book. But the Scripture tells us that the one who wrote this cannot lie. We're told he can't. Psalm 33.4 says this, The word of the law is right and true. It's right and true. It's right and true about history. The history that's in this book is right and it's true. But how do we know that this book is historically accurate? Well, you discover it kind of the same way that you study any book of history. You have to have eyewitnesses. I mean, just think about it. Have you ever seen an accident before? And the police come, and 
like you were there, and you, you were the first person there, and you saw it. But then a couple other people kind of, you know, they just get, they want to be popular. <laughs> and so they get there later. And the cops say, now what happened? And, like, they weren't even there. And they're like, oh, I saw it all. Let me tell you. That one hit this one. At me. Whoa. And you're like, dude, you weren't even there. I was there. You see, the way that you can discover whether or not a book is historically accurate or not is by the eyewitnesses. First-hand accounts. I mean, if you have second or third-hand account, or it's 100 years later, that's a legend. But that's not true. Well, this book is primarily written by eyewitness accounts. Moses saw the Red Sea split in half, and so he wrote it down. Joshua saw the walls of Jericho crumble, and so he wrote it down. The disciples of Jesus, those men who were closest to him, you know why they understood and wrote down that he resurrected from the dead? Because one day they're sitting in a room together and the doors are locked and all of a sudden Jesus shows up in the middle of that. And they could write about it then. Because one of those guys was a guy by the name of Matthew. He wrote the first book of the New Testament. He gives an eyewitness account. John was there. He was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus died upon it, so he could talk about that. And he was there when Jesus was placed in the tomb, and he was there when Jesus was not in the tomb, and he was there the night in which Jesus came into their presence in that room. Peter was there. He told a guy by the name of Mark, and Mark wrote it down, exactly his story, and then Peter writes a couple more books later on. And Luke talked about all of them, including Jesus' mother. He, he wanted to make sure that it was so accurate that he went to the one who was there through it all, and that was Jesus' mom, Mary. And so he sits down and he talks and he writes it down as an eyewitness account. The other test of any history is you've got to see, has it been translated correctly? Has it been copied over correctly? And you should see the extreme care that they took in seeing that things were copied correctly. You may have heard people say this about the Bible before. Well, I'm sure that thing was really true and it was right when it was first written. But now it's been thousands and thousands of years since then, and generation after generation. And surely when they were copying it back and forth, that eventually they just, you know, messed up and they put in their own thoughts and they put in their own feelings and things were just different. All those things must have changed it. But let me just kind of tell you, because I've been studying it this week, the extreme care that they went to, to copying the Scripture. The copyists, the scribes, when they would copy these scrolls down, they would copy them just like a copy machine or a Xerox copy. They wanted to make sure that it was exactly the same thing. So if it said this on this page, they wanted to make sure it was exactly the same. And they made some rules that it could be only so many columns, uh, the length of it and the width of it. And they copied it letter by letter, word by word. I mean, it's not like when we're texting. You know, when you text, and somebody texts and you forget something or two, and all of a sudden it's interpreted very differently on the other end. For example, when uh, I first got into texting, uh, I noticed that uh, some women in the church would end their 
little like text to me, LOL. Now, I didn't know what that meant. And so I tried to make it up to, for myself, and I thought, that, what they mean is love a lot. <laughs> and so I get real freaked out, and I go back, and I'm like, oh, 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 oh look, it, it's these women, they're, they're telling me they love me a lot, Jen, I'm concerned. She's like, you idiot, it doesn't mean lots of love. It means laugh out loud, you know? Lots of love. What, a, what an idiot. But you see what happens? I mean, just think about that. Just a small little text, and you miss out a word or two, and things are very different. Well, when they copied the Bible, folks, they had particular rules to make sure that it was copied exactly. For instance, they would know how many letters were in a particular book of the Bible. So let's say, for instance, the Gospel of Mark. They would know exactly how many letter A's there were in the entire book. So if there were 1,653 A's in that book, they would say, okay, that's how many there were. Then they would go back after they copied it, and they would count every single A. And if they came up with 1,654, guess what they did? Ripped it up, threw it away. They were exact. They knew exactly what the middle letter of the Pentateuch was, which was the first five books of the Bible. So they could tell you exactly that it's letter. I couldn't tell you that, but that was one of the rules that they had. They had to know exactly what the middle of each book was. They knew the middle letter of the entire Old Testament. Just think about that. You start copying all of the Old Testament. You get all the way to the end in Malachi. And then you say, okay, we've got to see if it's historically correct, if it's been copied correctly. So we go to the middle of the Old Testament. Ah, it's letter D. Get rid of it. Because they wanted to make sure that it was copied exactly the same. So from the middle to the back, they would check to have these little checks to make sure that everything was copied correctly. Another way that we see that it was copied correctly and it was so true from its original was something that came a couple of decades ago called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think we have a uh, picture uh, of these Dead Sea Scrolls. And so these were things that were copied. Uh, the Bible was copied on these and it was placed in these jars to keep them safe. And in 1947, they found them in this cave. How many of you have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls before? Okay. You might say, well, why are they important? I mean, the Grateful Dead's important, but, you know, what about, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, before these were discovered, the earliest copies of the Old Testament we had were 900 years after Jesus. In other words, the earliest thing that we could figure out of when it was written was 900 years after Jesus. However, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they determined that they were a hundred years before Jesus. So there's a thousand year gap. And all of a sudden now, we have two different things that we can compare. One is a lot older. It's a thousand years older than the other one. And let's see how much did they really change the Scripture. 
Are you, are you following me here? Because this is really, really important. You know how much they change? Go ahead. Ask your neighbor. Tell your neighbor how much you think it changed in a thousand years, okay? Percentage-wise. 1%, 10%, 20 40 50%. 5%. And you know what the 5% was mainly? Misspelled words and misspelled words of places. So the spelling of words and the spelling of names, that was pretty much the 5%. Over a thousand years, the copyists were proven to be right as it was copied again and again and again and again. And then they could say, yeah, this is historically correct. Another proof is archaeological findings. Now, archaeology is nothing more than a bunch of guys that like to go back to the sandbox. You know what I mean? They like to dig around. And a little bit more science to that, I guess, but for the most part, that's it. And archaeology proves again and again that the places and the people that were in this book, that it's actually true. You can find these places. It's not fiction. They've actually been dug up. For example, here's one, the area of Pegasus. The area of Pegasus. This is the place where Paul was. We read about it. We know it. That's, it's in the Bible. And they've actually excavated it and they can see it. The second one is the theater in Athens where uh, this riot took place. They've, they've dug that up and they can show it. Remember the story of the blind man who goes in the New Testament and he's healed by water, the pool of Siloam? We actually have dug that up. We know where it's at. There's portions of Herod's temple, King Herod. He's a figure in the Bible. They've dug them up. We can see them. And there are many other archaeological digs that show that what is in this book actually is true. In fact, the whole book of Acts, folks, is simply a history of the early church. And that's why Luke went through all of this focus and this tediousness uh, to make sure that every detail was correct. That's why he's so specific that he talks about 54 cities and 39 countries and nine different islands. Complete historical accuracy. All of those are true. You see, folks, the Bible is actually more accurate than our own understanding of history. But many times, you know, people have looked into it, they've dug into it, and they'll say, well, the Bible was wrong about this, or the Bible was wrong about that. And then, remarkably, once they did some research and the science got better, they proved them to be right every single time that it's been proved to be right. For example... For a long period of time, historians did not believe in Solomon. Solomon was the guy in the Old Testament who was the son of King David, the greatest king. And Solomon was the wisest man. And the scripture tells us that uh, he had thousands of horses. But when people did research, they're like, we've never, horses didn't even exist, and it was just camels in this particular area that Solomon was at. So there's no way that uh, Solomon is correct and no way that the Bible's correct. And then one day they did this archaeological dig at Megiddo and they discovered one of Solomon's chariot cities here, thousands of stables for guess what? Horses! 
Camels and horses are different sizes. Wouldn't you agree? And so they found these stables that only fit for horses. But for the longest time, they didn't think it was correct. Things that make you go, hmm. And the Bible was proven right. I feel a little bit uh, like excited about this topic. So you want another? Say, bring it, bunch. Go ahead. All right, bring it, bunch. All right, here you go. You want another one? Let's talk about the Hittites that were in the Bible. It speaks of them, but it's not spoken anywhere else in history. So historians, when they looked at this, they said, well, the Bible's wrong because we have no other record in history that says that the Hittites even existed. Until the early 1900s when a professor by the name of Hugo Winkler at Bogoskoy found 10,000 tablets at the Capitol, and guess whose name were on all the tablets? Hittites! Now everyone believes in the Hittites. You Don't believe what I just told you. Go online, look at it for yourself. But now everyone, I mean all the academic institutions, when they do Western civilization, when they do different uh, theories of history, they talk about the Hittites. So the Bible is historically accurate, and the archaeology backs it up. Well, allow me to recap some of what we've learned so far today. I am going bald. It's true. Chris has no musical talent whatsoever. He cannot play an instrument. He cannot sing, as we witness. He's what I call a prison singer, always behind a few bars, never seems to have the right key. You know, we also learned that the Bible is historically accurate, and as Chris said and showed, archaeology backs that up. Now, the second reason that you can trust the Bible is the Bible is scientifically accurate. The Bible is scientifically accurate. You know, there's so much misunderstanding and baloney about all this. The people that think it is scientifically inaccurate have never have either never studied the Bible or they just know absolutely nothing about science. Because God's words does not contradict the laws of science. It doesn't. The Bible wasn't given to be a scientific textbook, naturally. You know, you don't study the Bible to build a rocket. And the Bible doesn't use a bunch of scientific language and a bunch of lingo. But the Bible never, never gives bad science. In fact, it's always ahead of science. There are things in the Bible that the Bible says are true that we have just discovered 200, 300 years ago. For thousands of years, we have misunderstood things. And one thing about truth is it never changes. But one thing about science is it constantly changes. I guarantee you that the science book you used in the third grade is now obsolete. 
unless you're in the third grade. A lot of things in that book are no longer believed. They're no longer even taught anymore. I mean, how many articles have you read that said something you thought was good for you now causes cancer? Or stuff they said was fine for a pregnant woman to take, and now they're saying, no, they they can't have that now. Science constantly changes. If you go to Paris, there's a famous art museum and library called the Louvre. I got a picture of it at night, too, a beautiful place. But in that library, there is one section that has three and a half miles of obsolete science books. Three and a half miles. Because what we thought was fact a thousand years ago was disproven 750 years ago. What we thought 25 years ago was disproven 10 years ago. And what we thought 10 years ago is being changed today. I mean, if you'd been reading the Bible a thousand years ago or or 500 years ago, what the Bible says would not have matched the science of that day. Because science wasn't up to date. Does that make sense? It wasn't the Bible. It was science. God understands stuff even when we don't. The Bible says in Psalm 148, Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for He issued His command, and they came into being. He established them forever and ever, and His orders will never be revoked. Truth does not change. In 1861, there was a famous book that came out called 51 Incontrovertible Proofs that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. It was a very famous book at the time. So it was 51 facts that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. And the only problem is now, today, 150 years later, you couldn't find a single scientist on the entire planet who would agree with any of the facts that was put in that book. I'm going to tell Chris has some good archaeology things here, but I'm going to get into some good science things here for you. Thousands and thousands of years. People believed that the earth was flat. Now, it wasn't until Galileo, Columbus, that people realized the world was a sphere, a ball. So you'd expect the Bible to say the earth is flat because it was being written those thousands of years when everybody thought that the earth was flat, right? Not a single verse in the Bible says the earth is flat. In fact, 2,600 years ago, God said in Isaiah 40, verse 22, God is enthroned above the sphere on the earth. 2,600 years ago, the Bible said the earth was round long before anybody knew it. When that was written, nobody believed it. 
God said it, and it was true. You know, for thousands of years, people believed the earth was flat and it was being held up by something, depending on whatever your culture was. For instance, if you were a Greek, you believed the world was held up by a giant named Atlas. That's what they believed. It was flat. He held it up. If you were an Egyptian, you believed it was held up by five pillars. That's what you believed. None of this is in the Bible. Why? Because it's not true. In fact, the oldest known writing to man is likely the book of Job. It's the oldest literature in existence that we know of. Job was the very first book written in the Bible. The books of the Bible are not in chronological order, just in case you don't know that. Job is the oldest book. And in Job 26, verse 7, the oldest known literature in the human race says this, God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Who told Job that? I mean, how, how did he know that? Everybody knows the earth is pillars is, is holding the earth up. The Bible always tells the truth. You know, we could go into so many areas today on what the Bible says about biology, chemistry, medicine. You know, for years, people believed that too much blood in your body made you sick. Thousands of years. This was the accepted custom, and they did what was called bloodletting. Doctors would cut a sick person, and they would bleed them, thinking that this was going to make them healthy. It was accepted science. Everyone knew that that was true. Many people don't know that our first president, George Washington, was killed by doctors bleeding him to death. That's how he died. He had a heart problem. The doctors didn't know what to do. They did the common practice of that day, and they bled him. He didn't get better. They bled him again. He didn't get better. They bled him again, and he died from blood loss. Today, we know you give people blood when they're sick. Blood is the life source. Think of a transfusion. But they didn't know that for thousands of years. But the Bible knew it. In Leviticus 17, thousands and thousands of years ago, God said the life of every creature is in its blood. I mean, how did Moses know that? We didn't even know that blood circulates until sometime around 1650. During the Middle Ages, there was the bubonic plague. This plague killed a quarter of Europe. One out of every four died during the Black Plague because we didn't understand germs. We didn't understand contagion, infection. We didn't understand quarantining people. So they had sick people with the plague laying next to healthy people. People were contagious, and this became an epidemic. They should have read the Bible. Thousands and thousands of years before the bubonic plague, God said in Leviticus 13, verse 4, 
put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. Before we even knew what germs were, God was saying, here is how you take care of infected people. So we know that we can trust the Bible because it is historically accurate and it is scientifically accurate. Now the third way that we know that the Bible can be trusted is because it is prophetically accurate. Prophetically accurate. Now what does that mean? What does that word prophetically mean? It means that there are predictions in the Bible... And they always come true. That's what it means for something to be prophetic. It's given and then it actually is found to be true. Now the Bible is filled with thousands and thousands of different prophecies. In other words, God says this is going to happen in such and such time. This is going to happen in such and such way. And then it actually took place. It happened like that. And over the centuries, uh, thousands of prophecies were given in the Bible, and every single one of them was fulfilled exactly the way that God said it would be. And there are still some yet that we're waiting on when Jesus returns. I didn't know if you knew this or not, but did you know that there were 300 prophecies alone in the Old Testament about Jesus, the Messiah? 300 things that were predicted. And they were predicted a thousand years before he ever even came on the scene. Like before he was born. Over a thousand years before, 300 prophecies. Some of them were like this. This is when he will be born. This is where he will be born. This is how he will be born. Now folks, I guess what you could say is, well, when Jesus came to earth, what he did was, he took the Old Testament and he read about all of these prophecies and then he just started trying to fulfill all of them so that people would believe in him. There's only one problem with that. That you can't predict when you're born. When you're born, you're just born. You can't say, hey, I'm ready to get born. Whoa, that was a ride, you know. No. When... You're born, you're born. You can't predict that. And yet, a thousand years before, it predicted exactly when, where, and how he would be born. There were other prophecies. Like, for instance, if you knew you were going to die on a cross, do you think you'd just say, I think I want that to be fulfilled. I'm ready for that. No. And how he, was, and how he would die and what form he would die. And all of these things were done by the Romans Jesus had no control over his body whatsoever after he's arrested in the garden. None whatsoever. Everything that happened to him at that point was in somebody else's hand. But God's word predicted it and predicted it true. 300 prophecies, every one of them fulfilled. How many of you think I could pick 300 things in your life and that uh, they'd all come true? I want to sell you something if you think so. Okay, meet me afterwards. No! You see, folks, this is the issue. I think it takes more faith to believe that everything in this book was coincidence than to believe that it was actually done 
according to God's plan. The Bible says this in 2 Peter, No prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. You know, in Bible days, folks, nobody wanted to be a prophet. Do you know why? Yeah, you get killed. That was the rule, the law of Israel was this. A prophet of God had to be 100% correct. And if you were wrong just once, you were considered to be a false prophet. And so nobody wanted to be a prophet. I mean, you get whacked out, killed, if you're just wrong one time. Now, we have prophets today, and they are called psychics, right? Dionne Warwick and all of her friends. You know, uh, come and be a part of that. And, and just in case you ever go to a psychic, let me give you a little advice. Um, and the advice would be this. Never, never trust a psychic to ask for your name. If they're psychic, they should already know your name. And if you go and they want to charge you something, say, well, you're psychic, you should know my credit card number. (laughs) Right? Jesus said this in Matthew 26. He said, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the Scripture. In other words, Jesus said, everything that I'm doing, it's all to simply fulfill what God has already predicted. Revelation 22, John, the guy who stood at the foot of the cross and saw Jesus raised from the dead, he said this, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and they're true. The Lord sent his angel to show how his servant to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The Bible is prophetically accurate. I mean, think about it, folks. What, what are the odds of every single one of these prophecies from the Old Testament actually coming true? It's astronomical. You couldn't write a number that long. Fourth thing. The fourth reason I know the Bible is trustworthy is it is thematically unified. It is thematically unified. Kind of a big word. What's that mean? What's kind of the root of that word? Theme. Exactly. It's theme. The Bible has a theme from the beginning to the end, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. And the the same theme is this. It is redemption. The theme of redemption from beginning to end. Jesus is the star, folks, of this whole entire book. And his whole purpose, the reason why this book is even given to us, is to let us know that we can be rescued. That's what redemption means. It means to rescue people from themselves. It is the theme of rescuing people 
from their flub-ups, mess-ups, and screw-ups in life. It is the theme of rescuing people so that when they sin, they don't get bogged down by it and messed up by it and feel guilty for years and years, but they get forgiven by the theme of the one who is the great rescuer. He rescues people. Now, the reality is that this is not unique. There are many books that have themes. You could think of them. And there's a theme that goes all the way to it, cover to cover. There are many books that do that. But there are no books, folks. Absolutely none. Zilch, nada, none of them. That was written in a 1600 period of time with 40 different authors. That's what this book is. It was written in a 1600 year period of time with 40 authors. 1,600 years it was written. That's how long it took. Written by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. And they didn't, many of them didn't even know each other. How do you think they all got the same story? It wasn't even collected in one book until a thousand years after they died. That's the Old Testament. Now, it would have been very different if this book was just written by one person, right? So written by one person, it could be unified. For example, this book right here is the Quran. It is uh, written by one person, a guy by the name of Muhammad. So you could say, hey, that makes sense. It's unified. The Analects of Confucius were written by Confucius. The writings of Buddha was written by Buddha. You would expect every single one of those books to be uniform. But a book that was written by 40 different people in different places in the world at different times, and they all have the exact same theme? This book was written by poets and prophets. It was written by princes and kings. It was written by sailors and soldiers. This book was written by attorneys and doctors. It was written by prisoners. It was written by poor people. It was written by common people. It was written by all kinds of people. And it was written in different locations. Some of this uh, book was written in caves. Other parts of this book was written on ships. Other parts were written in homes. Other parts were written uh, in palaces. And they all come up with the same theme? Think about that, folks. Every single one comes up with the same theme? We couldn't get everyone here to agree on one thing, I'm sure. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. Beginning with Moses, that is, the first book's first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five were written by Moses. So beginning at the very beginning, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and so that's all the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, did you guys get that? There's a really, I know it's kind of academic this morning. So you got to kind of focus it. But did you get that? You see, this is the thing about this book, folks. Most people think that the New Testament is about Jesus. And most people think that the Old Testament was about this group of people called Israel. But it could not be further from the truth. 
You know what this book is all about? It is all about Jesus pointing people to the one who knows you best and loves you most. The New Testament wasn't even written yet when Jesus said these words. And he's talking about the Old Testament. He says he went through all the scriptures and it showed what it said about him. The story from beginning to end, folks, is pointing to Christ. The pictures, the metaphors, the analogies, everything in Scripture from beginning to end is about God's plan to redeem and rescue people. He wants to rescue every single person and turn them from being a creation of God to being a child of God. See, folks, you decide whether or not you want to be adopted by God. No one chooses that for you. You decide. Every single one of us were created in God's image, but you choose whether or not you'll be a child of God. That's why I hope many of you will sign up for baptism, because that's the commitment that says, I want to be adopted into God's family. It all begins with Jesus. John 5.39, Jesus says this, You search the Scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life. But the Scriptures point to who? He says, the Scriptures point to me. Jesus says, all of Scripture points to me. Remember, the New Testament hasn't even been written yet, folks. And he's saying, all of the Old Testament, everything that many people are afraid to read, folks, it's all just pointing to Jesus. Fifth thing. The fifth way that I know that I can trust the Bible is that it is confirmed by Jesus. It's confirmed by Jesus. You see, Jesus trusted the Bible. In fact, he trusted all the writers who were in the Bible. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus said this, I'll tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will disappear from the law, the Old Testament, until everything, everything is accomplished. Jesus says the Scripture is going to last until the end of time. And on top of that, he says this in John 10, 35. And let's read this one together, because it is the essence of what we're talking about today. Let's all read this in one voice. Scripture is always true. Scripture is always true. Not sometimes, not most of the time, not 99% of the time. It's 100% time true. Jesus proclaimed the truth of the Bible, and he believed every single sentence and every word that was in this book. And so if Jesus believed every single letter and word in this book, I need to believe it. Because if I trust Jesus, then I trust the one who said, I believe everything in this book. Now, when Jesus talks about the Bible, he's not just talking about poetry and history. He's not looking around going, oh, you know, that's really nice. No, he's saying, this book can change your life. You see, folks, the reason why we want you to read it and engage in it isn't because we want you to have some big reading and this kind of weight of feeling like, oh, man, now I've got to read the Bible. The reason we want you to read it is because it has power to change your life. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. He said it will change your life. You see, you can't just read the Bible. You've got to let the Bible read you. You understand the difference? It reads you. That's why we put a five-minute 
Bible reading plan in your program. Not for you just to throw it away or recycle it, but for you to actually get into it. Five minutes a day. But it can change your life. Look at what it says in verse uh, 28 of Luke in chapter 11. Jesus said this, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God. And what's it say? Obey it. So he's not talking about reading the scripture for its poetry and their, its history and going, oh, that's nice, isn't that wonderful? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You ever do, hear that at funerals? People are like, oh, boy, that's wonderful. It's in the Bible. That's why it's wonderful. And you can't just read it. You've got to obey it. I'll tell you what, for me, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. I read a scripture this morning in Philippians uh, that we've been looking at. And it's hard. You know, what the, you know what the scripture was? Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, that's an easy one. Ugh. Okay, Chuck, you're up. You know, I mean, that's not easy, but it's true. Don't be anxious about anything. Because if you're not, you'll experience the peace of God. Folks, when Jesus talked about the Bible, he talked about it as a real book with real people and real places by a real God. And it works in our lives. It will work your life out. It will draw you closer. It will give you abundant life. God just doesn't want you to have life. He wants you to have abundant life. Now here's a quick list of some of the people and places that Jesus actually refers to in his teachings in the New Testament, referring back to the Old Testament and saying, I believe this. I believe these things. Jesus believed in the prophets. He talked about the prophets all the time. He said they're real. He talked about Daniel being real and the lions being real. Jesus believed in this guy named Noah who said that uh, there would be this flood. He happened to believe in the flood that it took place. He believed in Adam and Eve. He believed in the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah where this entire city collapses upon itself and crumbles and kills the whole city. He believed in it. He believed in Jonah. Now here's the interesting thing, particularly about those last four. Noah, Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah. You know what those four stories are? The most disputed in the entire Bible. People just don't believe those things that happen. I mean, they're good stories. They have good moral uh, you know, uh, thoughts to us, but, but they can't be true. And Jesus said, no, 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 they happen. They're true. He wrote about it. In fact, Jesus used illustrations about all four of them. I mean, if Jesus really believed that what happened to Jonah happened to Jonah, guess what? I believe it. Why? Because I believe in Jesus. Now, to be honest, folks, I don't know how God created a fish that just sucked up a human being. And the human being was inside the fish. But if Jesus believed it, then I believe it to be true. It is trustworthy. Jesus trusted the Bible, and I trust in Him. The sixth reason that you can trust the Bible as the absolute authoritative Word of God is it has survived all attacks. It has survived all attacks. That, in itself, makes it a very unusual book. 
The Bible is the most despised book, the most denied book, the most disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, the most destroyed and the most banned book ever in history. Millions of people have died because they refused to give up their Bible. You take a Bible into North Korea today and you can be killed for it. Isn't that amazing? The Bible has been under attack for century after century, yet it is still the most read book in the world. If you took the Bible out of culture, you have basically destroyed most of the major music, most of the major art, and most of the major architecture for over 2,000 years. It is the source of our culture. You speak the language you do because of the King James Version of the Bible. About 400 years ago, they published the King James Version. The words you use today came out of that book, out of the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The only thing that will last is the Word of God. It is eternal. 1 Peter 1, verse 24, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. You know, the truth will always be the truth, whether you believe it or not. And God gives you the freedom to totally thumb your nose to him and rebel against him your entire life. But that is not the end of the story. I mean, you can run away from God the rest of your life, but then you can't run anymore. And you're going to come face to face with God one day, whether you believe in Him or not. And all that I don't believe in Him's in the world is not going to stop that event from taking place. The seventh reason to believe the Bible is the one dearest to me. Because it's the one that I get to see personally. It has transforming power. It has transforming power. Nothing can change the lives of people like the Bible. Nothing. My life's been changed by it. Millions of lives have been changed by it. You know, I've seen flat-out drunks, irresponsible addicts get their lives clean and sober because they start reading the Bible. I've seen self-centered, it's all about me men, who abuse and misuse women, have their lives transformed, and they become godly husbands, and they become wonderful dads because of reading the Bible. And I know we're in the middle of a presidential election, but let me tell you something. Politics doesn't change the greatest problems on this planet. 
All the laws of the world will not change your heart. God does that. The Word of God does that. It changes people you would have never imagined that it could possibly change. Jesus said this in John 8, verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know what the most amazing thing is? Secular colleges all around the world have the second half of this verse printed in stone on buildings and universities all over. The truth will make you free. Then they ignore God and they ignore the Bible. They forget the first part. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If this book, if this book is not true, we are in a heap of trouble. Our salvation depends on this book being true. This is the book that tells you that your life is not an accident. Science doesn't tell you that. This is the book that tells you there is a purpose for your life. Science, again, doesn't tell you that. This is the book that says God made you to love you. This is the book that says whatever you have done in your past can be forgiven. This is the book that says there's reason for hope. This is the book that shows us how to get to heaven. You know, there's that phrase, uh, where the rubber meets the road. And ultimately, you have to decide, is this book true? Is it the final authority in your life? Because it doesn't have to be. You can say you're the final authority of your life. I'm going to make my own opinion. I'll, I'll say what I want. I'll do what I want. And that's fine. I guess the question that I would have if you've been living that way is, how's it been going? How's it been working? How effective has that plan been? But if you want to say today, you know what, I don't have it all together, but hey, I'm willing to kind of maybe memorize those two verses, kind of dig into five minutes you know, a day in the Bible, try to learn the story of Jesus. If you're saying, hey, I'll, I'll, make the, I'll make God's Word kind of a foundation for my home, my family, my marriage, my kids, then I want to invite you to pray a prayer that I'm going to lead us through. So I'd invite you to stand to pray. And I'll invite the prayer team to come up and they'll uh, stand up here. And anyone that has any prayer for anything, can come up and uh, someone will be there to, to pray for you. And I'd like you to just allow this prayer to um, be your prayer, but to 
just kind of say it silently to yourself. Let's pray. God, from this day forward, I want to know your word called the Bible better. I want it to be the final authority of my life. Not what television says, not what popularity says, not what my family thinks, not even what I think sounds best. And God, even when it's not easy, I'm going to follow your words. God, thank you so much for loving me enough that you would speak through words. That I, you, You're not a silent God. You speak to us when we open these words. Thank you that you wanted me to be a part of your family. You want me to know you. You want me to know the purpose for my life. God, I want to love your word. God, I want to God, I want to...